The following program is for informational and educational purposes only. This program does not replace medical, mental health, or psychological diagnosis and treatment prescribed by your personal physician, psychologist, therapist, or other health care provider. Please consult your provider for diagnosis and care before beginning or changing any program or idea discussed. Welcome to Psych Up Live with your host, Dr. Suzanne Phillips. This is the show that brings you a psychological perspective on common and current life issues. Here is Dr. Suzanne Phillips. Welcome. I'm Suzanne Phillips. Thanks for joining me again on Psych Up Live. According to the National Center for Educational Statistics, one out of every five students in the U.S. report being bullied. 41% of those students report being bullied and expecting it to happen again. According to Safe Canada, 47% of Canadian parents have at least one child who reports being a victim of bullying. Today, we're going to speak about bullying. Bullying is not an occasional or isolated incident. We're going to talk about the prevalence, the meaning, targets, and the impact in a way that helps us find pathways for prevention. We are so fortunate to have as our guest expert today, Dr. Tracy Valancourt, a tier one Canada research chair in school-based mental health and violence prevention at the University of Ottawa. Dr. Valancourt is recognized for her research on bullying. Dr. Valancourt is cross-appointed at the University of Ottawa as a full professor in counseling psychology, Faculty of Education in the School of Psychology, and Faculty of Social Sciences. She is a member of the Brain and Mind Institute, Faculty of Medicine and the Center for Health Law, Policy, and Ethics. She's the president of the International Society for Research on Aggression and the chief editor of Frontiers in Child and Adolescent Psychiatry, Child Mental Health and Interventions. This is a very smart and a very busy lady. Dr. Tracy Valancourt, it is my privilege to welcome you today to Psych Up Live. Hello, Dr. Phillips. I'm happy to be here. So, Tracy, let's start with the question of how did we how do we define bullying? Bullying is defined as a systematic abuse of power, and it typically encompasses repetition, uh, negative behavior that's intentional and uh, the uh, imbalance of power. Hmm. And so it can, it can include hitting, name-calling, right? Spreading rumors, a wide variety of behaviors. Exactly. And even cyberbullying falls under that umbrella, although the power differential is harder to establish with cyberbullying than it is um, when you look at more traditional forms of bullying. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure that that's true. The one thing I heard that does add to that kind of imbalance is sometimes you don't know who's cyberbullying you. They exactly, you know, yes, and, and then so, and the pile on too. So um, it may not be one individual has more power per se, um, but there's a lot of them, and that uh, creates an imbalance of power. Right, right. So one of the things that um, I found in your writings. These are wonderful articles. Um, What can be done about school bullying was a very interesting differential between the use of explicit power, the bully who uses the typical, I'm bigger than you, stronger, I'm tougher, um, and the bully who uses implicit power. And you make a distinction between these two groups. I wonder if you could help our listeners understand that. So we hold a stereotype of bullies. And we tend to think, if you think about Nelson from The Simpsons, he's all explicit power. So he achieves power by uh, oppressing, humiliating, scaring um, the individuals that he's abusing. Um, But power doesn't always have to be achieved forcefully. Um, You can also wield power because you have assets and competencies that the peer group values. So implicit power tends to come from being a good leader, um, being um, charismatic, uh, exciting, and the like. Uh, the issue is is that power tends to corrupt. And uh, so what we see is that even individuals who have implicit power, oftentimes they, I guess, slip into that explicit power area. 
So there's a melange of the two forms of power. But when we think about bullies, we typically think about explicit power only. And we fail to then recognize those who wield um, a lot of power, who are maybe not as obvious to the teachers, these high status bullies. Mm. Um, they tend to actually wreak more havoc than the the other explicit group um, insofar as uh, they're so high on popularity. They're so high on invisibility and influence, um, and they tend to uh, bully with impunity. Whereas the other group, um, that explicit power, that Nelson from The Simpsons stereotype I'm talking about, um, they are very recognizable, but maybe don't wield this, the same level of power because they have no explicit power. So this is where, you know, the um, the stereotype of the bully as coming from a very difficult neighborhood, um, parents who may have problems, violence in the home. That's that's the stereotype. But you're saying the those with implicit power, the cheer, the head of the cheerleaders, the, the head of the the quarterback, they fly under the radar a little bit, a lot, maybe. And actually, then that makes them more dangerous, doesn't it? Exactly. So the other group, the first group you were talking about, they exist for sure. And they probably represent about 10% of kids who bully others. Um, and we're so aware of them as educators in the school system. Uh, we devote a lot of attention and resources to cur curtailing their use of aggression. Um, but the other group, they're so Machiavellian. So there's this mixture of nice and mean, and they manipulate teachers in a way that they tend to think that they're really noble and uh, positive ci uh, citizens within the education uh, environment, and yet they're really uh, jerks on the playground. Mm. You know, one of the things that either you wrote or one of your colleagues was teachers respond to kids they identify with. So if I identify with the quarterback, I'm not going to see him as a bully because I idealize him too if I'm the teacher. I mean, that, that's going to be one of the issues. My question as a psychologist is, what is it that makes necessary for a kid who already is on top of the peer group um, to misuse the power? And is it just that, as you say, power corrupts? I don't know that it corrupts everyone. So I keep thinking, what is it about those who actually hide their Machiavellian behavior? So... A lot of times power is achieved um, through aggressive means, but it's also maintained through aggressive means. Mm. But if it's only aggressive means, then you're not going to wield power for very long because eventually you're going to turn off the peer group um, because you're so cruel and it's so off base. But if it's like, think about it from a psychological perspective where it's that intermittent schedule of reward. So mm. sometimes you're kind to the individual and sometimes you're cruel to the individual. So you're kind of always keep keeping them um, engaged and yes. interested. And I think that that's what happens. But in terms of your point about like, why does power corrupt? It's interesting because if you look at experimental studies, one of the most robust replicated finding is the corrupting influence of power. Mm -hmm. So even, even individuals who think they won't be corrupted by power really are and you see its corrupting influence across society. I mean, mm. you could just look at politics to right, right. you know, a bird's eye view of this. That's and, right. um, and so there's something about this uh, corrupting influence. I don't think we have a good grasp on the group of kids who um, have only implicit power. They're not this melange of implicit and explicit. So meaning they're just really good leaders who don't abuse others. Um, we don't really know about that popular nice kid um, we know a lot about the popular mean kid because, you know, like I've studied that in earnest for over 20 years and mm -hmm. so have others. Um, but it's an interesting, that other group we really need to know more about because if we could figure out of the characteristics of those individuals, then maybe we could, um, you know, uh, maybe design interventions that, that, that mirror their, their good behavior. Yeah, or fuel that behavior, absolutely. Yeah. So let me ask you your opinion on this. I've read about the invisibility of the girl bully. And this is uh, Suzanne Suho's work. She's an educator. And she's saying, you know, the girl to girl bullying is invisible. It's passed from generation to generation. 
because either um, school administrators feel like, well, we got to focus on the physical behavior of kids beating each other up in the hall. We're not going to get involved with the girls. And the girls do a lot of the uh, social exclusion, the rumors, the cyberbullying. Um, what's your feeling? Do you actually feel that there's real credence in girls getting harmed by a kind of invisible bullying that school school programs just don't pick up on? 100%. So I've done probably the bulk of my work on that form of uh, bullying. So mm. sometimes it's called social, relational, it's also called indirect bullying. Mm -hmm. And I've looked at this across the lifespan. In fact, I'm writing a book with a colleague of mine, Dr. Peggy Drexler, uh, that will be coming out uh, next year, uh, titled Mean, and it's about mean women. So mm. we're talking about children here, but it actually extends into adulthood. Um, and it causes profound harm. Uh, you know, belonging is salient to all children and adolescents, but it's particularly salient to adolescent girls. Mm. And so when they're victims of this type of bullying, they're really hurt. They become more depressed, more anxious and suicidal than um, if they were verbally attacked in some ways. Mm -hmm. that's, exa that's exactly what she says. She says the teachers and the parents may well have been victims of this kind of bullying and never felt they figured it out, Tracy. So they don't even know quite what to say to their daughters. It's, it's a very interesting, but of course, this is a harmful dynamic. Oh, exactly. And I would, I would argue that they, uh, they were probably victims of this type of bullying in childhood and adolescence right. and probably still are as mm -hmm. adult, adults, especially adult women in the workplace, uh, in the mom groups and the like. Again, I have a book that's coming out on this topic. So I'm very familiar with the research and the research um, supports that this is a common experience for children, adolescents and adults. Mm -hmm. Now, the other the other thing when we talk about vulnerable targets, on the, when I've read some of the material, it could be a new person at a school, a person of a different race, a disabled student, or the LGBTQ kids who, I mean, uh, I think 85% of them report bullying of some kind in a school situation. Um, what, what do we think of in terms of intervention? Do you think this this grouping that I just mentioned, they go also under the radar? Or do you think school um, administrators are trying to address this? I think they're trying to address this. I think these are the uh, these children who are targeted for these the reasons that you just listed um, were very we're very aware of their vulnerability, and I think that schools are trying to address this in earnest. Um, one of my concerns, though, is that we tend to forget about the target who's targeted for having a lot of success, a lot of assets. Mm -hmm. So we tend to. Uh, girls in particular tend to trip the prom queen, um, you know, knock down right. the tall poppy. And so when they become, when they go to the administration and say, hey, I'm being bullied, um, you know, there's they don't engender the same level of support because they often get told they have everything going for them. They should just be happy with all of the assets and competencies that they have. And they don't recognize that there's a lot of jealousy and that jealousy then is... Um, displayed through aggressive means. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, it, may, it makes so much sense. Um, the one thing that I worried a little bit that, about for the LGBTQ kids is the we speak so much about the community and the power of the school climate. Depending on where you live, the community, um, the religious backgrounds, um, there may be, I wondered or worried that there were some situations where there's an overall feeling of having an issue with LGBTQ children by the teachers themselves, by the community, if not the teachers, that these kids have to sort of work around. I think it's an important point because what we don't want to do is generalize. In fact, I've argued in several papers that every school has its own culture. Mm -hmm. So in some schools, um, so for example, we have a high school here in Ottawa that is very pro-LGBTQ+. It's a dramatic arts um, school. And so, you know, there's, you know, individuals thrive in that environment. But then you could go down, 
you know, 20 kilometers down the road and be at a different school. There's a different culture where homophobia is rampant. So we really need to be thinking about the culture of each individual school. So that school is then in turn nested within a community which may have similar viewpoints and within a state that has very similar viewpoints and the like. So there could be some continuity, but there's also oftentimes not. The, the culture is of a school is made up of the individuals that are in that school and the collective viewpoints that they, they hold. Right, right. So who is, we have the bully, the victim, but then we often talk about the bully victim, Tracy. Tell us about that kid. So that kid doesn't do well. So if we look at indicators of well-being, um, they're the ones that are usually at the top of the distribution um, in terms of impairment. Uh, impairment in terms of mental health, physical health, but also academic achievement. So this is a really dysregulated group. And I think that they actually fall more towards that explicit power um, group that we are talking about mm-hmm. earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that they have a lot of prefrontal dysfunction. Um, a lot of them have uh, meet diagnostic criteria for conduct problems, oppositional Uh, defiance disorder, ADHD, that sort of thing. So they're not really good at self-regulating. So if they're angry, they fly off the handle um, and they're very, they're provocative in some ways. And so um, the peer group doesn't tolerate them very well. Um, They're really at risk, at high, high risk. And we should be paying a lot of attention to this group. So these are the kids who might mimic the big bully leader or might, uh, try to to do what he's doing or will create a problem but at times they're the victim of the big bully leader they're um they're victim of actually not just the big bully leader they're a victim of a lot of their the peers in their immediate environment and the reason being is that they're quite like i said dysregulated and so a lot of times um, other students find these kids very annoying Mm -hmm. and they feel like sorry something just fell in my environment um, and they feel like they're entitled to treat them poorly because they, you know, and it's, it's a moral disengagement, but they think that these kids are so annoying so they can have it um, coming to them in a sense. Mm-hmm. So they really are in a rough place. Overall, you've said uh, and colleagues have said that the bully situation compared to a school where bullying has really dropped. Um it, it really does impair not only social functioning, but academic achievement. There is a high correlation, you correct me, between a situation where there's a lot of chaos in a school, aggression, violence, and bullying, and academic achievement. Correct. I mean, it's difficult to concentrate on academics when you're worried about uh, your safety. So it's, you know, and we need kids to feel safe. We need them to uh, be paying attention and the like in order to excel academically. And it's really hard when your environment is that stressful. Mm -hmm. So as your research touched upon, and we're going to be talking about this in the the next segment, who children go to? Do they go to anyone? What what does the research show in terms of do, do kids complain to the parents? From what I read, the last person to know was the, was the teacher. Maybe a friend they'll confide in, next the parent if they're desperate, but very rarely a teacher. But I don't know that to be true in terms of your research findings. So um, you're right. I think that that's the hierarchy of how it goes. A lot of times children and adolescents think that adults are going to screw it up and make it worse. So they, no, <laughs> yeah. seriously, it's really it's sad. true. They, yeah. So they suffer in silence. Yeah. So they will um, tell their friends if they have friends what's going on. Um, they'll tell their parents when things get a little bit too difficult for them to handle. By then, it usually has been go- ongoing for four to six months. It's not mm. like they're telling them right at the beginning. And then when they try and address it with the school, um, it's usually because they're at their wits end and it's they're desperate to have some form of intervention. And usually when they do approach, uh, you know, the administration at a school or a teacher, uh, they're worried that the teacher or the principal is going to then call in their abuser and they're going to have it out like in a meeting, right? right? And sometimes, sometimes they do that. And when they do that, I just think that it's really... Uh, they're really 
doing a disservice to the individual who's been bullied. I don't think they really understand the dynamics of bullying. If they do that, they should never, ever do that. Um, mm. And yet this is something they worry about. They also worry about it because it's portrayed often in the media that this is how, um, you know, this is how it's going to be dealt with. Mm. So one of the things that we should talk about is what's the preferential or the better, the more um, productive way of dealing with the situation if you're an administrator? Well, the most productive way from just, let me just say for kids and adolescents is to actually tell a trusted adult at your school. Because studies also show that when they do tell administrators or teachers um, that bullying tends to stop and it tends to stop immediately. Mm. There's going to be some individuals who are not appropriate, like the one I just mentioned, like that that meeting that they're going to have. I think that it behooves um, administrators and teachers to listen to the individual, to validate that their experience um, is is what it is, like meaning that it's happening and that they recognize that it's harmful. And then they need to then work with the child to figure out solutions on how to best address this. Mm -hmm. I think that children will feel more empowered if they're um, involved in the process. And the reason why they should also be involved in the process is that um, the politics of the of the playground are such that um, you need to be there in the immediate and involved to know what's really going on. And teachers are not privileged to those politics. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you, you wrote in your paper that so much happens out of the purview of teachers or administrators. It's the hallway. It's the, it's the back of the cafeteria. It's the playground. I had this, there was, there was a, um, I don't know, it came through my text, perhaps, and it was a, a very painful to look at it. Uh, a special needs kid had been cornered. People were going to cut his hair. He was surrounded by kids with, with their phones on, ready to take pictures. And I thought, oh, my goodness. Um, and I had this fantasy, Tracy, that what if what if every kid knew that if they had a text 211, that, that it went to the office and said, bullying going on? Or two one one playground, would it be? Would it give bystanders a way to protect the victim or intervene, even if they're too frightened to say anything? They would have called it in the way people will see a um, domestic violence case unfold and just hit nine one one and the cops show up. No one knows who even called it sometimes. But I thought there has to be a way that in those settings that we're talking about where there's hardly any supervision, a kid who want who is a upstander, as we call them, you know, can somehow alert an adult. I like the idea. I mean, it does have legs because we do need to be signaling that somebody's in distress and needs adult help. Maybe an easier way of dealing with it would be just to increase supervision, which I've been arguing for for the better part of 20 years. If we want to protect children, we need to have more adults supervising their interactions. For sure. What kind of pushback is it that you get? Um, You get pushback in terms of how expensive that is. Um, The rights of teachers are well protected in Canada with their unions. Um, I agree with them having protections for sure. Um, But I think something's got to give. We really need to be getting a handle on the supervision of students. I'm not too sure how it works in the United States in terms of um, teachers unions, but in Canada, they're very, very strong. And um, they have a few things written in within their... um, collective agreements that actually harm kids. So I'll give you one example. In high school, high school teachers don't need to go into the hallways during the transition between classes. And that's where the bulk of the bullying is going to take place, right? One place. We know that from very large studies that we've done um, looking at this issue. And so if we just had teachers just, you know, at the doorway greeting students as they come to their next class, uh, you would see a reduction in bullying. Mm. It's interesting having worked for many, many years as a therapist and many and teachers, of course, as as my clients, there were teachers who said, I'm always at my door. I want to know what's coming into that classroom. And they're, they're great teachers, but it's it sort of fits in what you're saying. There are people who naturally want to want to know, want to protect. And just the the wanting to know is impressive to me. I agree. I think that um, 
involvement reduces, I don't think I know that involvement uh, reduces bullying. Uh, we have 300 kids on our school grounds with two teachers who tend to cluster together. Um, and that's a formidable task to monitor 300 students um, in a big geographical area. Um, you know, we can't be saying we're doing right by kids when that's what's happening. Yeah, yeah. So I know we're going to have to take a break soon, but I wanted us to speak a bit about um, the the issue of whether or not it's too late to intervene on the high school level um, in terms of bully prevention. And if it's not too late, what are the kind of programs that we can think about? And um, you, I think everyone makes the point that it seems to be little ones are much more accepting of um, learning to be an upstander, learning to understand what a bystander is. One quick story is uh, a second, third grade reading teacher that were doing things on bully prevention was reading the little book by James Howe on Pinky and Rex and the Bully. And at some point, Pinky is a little boy who loves the color pink. And of course, he's hounded by a bully all the time. His friend, the little girl, is Rex on the playground. Um, of course, the bully knocks the basketball out of Pinky's hands and says, you're a girl, you shouldn't be playing this anyway, uh, which says something about all of us who want to be female athletes. But at any rate, he, he knocks it out. And sure enough, another kid comes over and grabs the ball and hands it back to Pinky and says to the bully, that's his ball. He has a right to play. Leave him alone. And that kid's name was Anthony. So the teacher says to me, when we get to that part of the story, all these little ones turn around to the Anthony in the class and say, Anthony, you were the upstander. You were the one who knocked the ball out of the, the bully's hands. And both she and I said they were so excited for him, just the, just the name similarity tells you that at that age, they're into it. They're buying into this moral code where you don't bully people. I love that story. I love it. Um, and because, you know, they're so engaged in literacy too. We have a program here in Canada that's called WITS and it does just that. It uses literature to get kids to think about bullying and to know what they can do if they're being bullied. So it's a good illustration of a WITS program that we have here in Canada that's efficacious for the reduction of bullying. What are the... So, so in Canada, do you have programs going both in the elementary schools and in the high schools? We do. We do. We have programs at both levels. I think about it along a continuum. So the meta-analyses on intervention suggest that you should be targeting kids in early elementary. So from kindergarten to grade three, um, that's where you're going to get the best out of the program. So the best reductions in bullying. Um, and that makes sense because that's more of a prevention strategy. And also, too, that's when kids are not really um, as competent in terms of social-emotional development. But, um, but you need to then also always um, be thinking about intervention throughout. So it could be universal programming where all kids in a school receive some type of anti-bullying program Tracy, or Tracy. targeted. Okay, I apologize. We're going to need to take a break. We're going to pick okay, up right no at this point. I, I missed the cue. You've been listening to Psych Up Live. We're having a wonderful conversation with Dr. Tracy Valencourt. She's a Tier 1 Canada Research Chair in School-Based Mental Health and Violence Prevention at the University of Ottawa. She's recognized for her knowledge and research in bullying. Stay with us. Much more to come. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Planning for college? 
Tune in to Getting In, a college coach conversation for tips, techniques, and insider perspectives. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton, a former admissions officer at the University of Pennsylvania and featuring her fellow admissions and college finance experts from Bright Horizons College Coach. The show shares what colleges are really looking for and how to highlight your hard-won achievements for the best chance at success. New episodes air every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Tune in every Friday to get your weekend kickoff early. Join the legendary G. Keith Alexander for What's Hot Harlem America. The flagship show of the new Harlem America Digital Network has something for everyone. From the latest in entertainment to empowerment, health and wellness, and more, we'll bring you a variety of fresh viewpoints, voices, and ideas. What's Hot Harlem America with G. Keith Alexander can be heard every Friday at 1 p.m. in New York and 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. It's time to get real, discover who you are, and get the tools to navigate your life. It's time to rock your midlife with Dr. Ellen Albertson, the Midlife Whisperer. Your midlife roadmap is the blueprint you need to roll with change, transform yourself, and create a fabulous second adulthood. Get answers and solutions for whatever you're up against and transform problems into opportunities. Make your next life chapter your best chapter with Rock Your Midlife every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Glow and Tell is the new provocative podcast from beauty expert, spa owner, and product junkie, Carolyn Holdsworth. The Southern-raised entrepreneur will share her unvarnished opinions on self-care and all things that are meant to glow, inside and out. Carolyn will be joined by guest experts who will go deep, and listeners will discover and discuss plenty about what they see and feel in the mirror each day. Questions and answers will wrap each podcast with no topics out of bounds. Don't miss Glow and Tell with Carolyn Holdsworth, Wednesdays at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Psych Up Live. Join in our conversation today by calling Dr. Suzanne Phillips or her guest at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Now, back to Psych Up Live. Welcome back to Psych Up Live. We're here with Dr. Tracy Valencourt, and we're having a really important conversation about bullying. And Dr. Valancourt's going to talk to us about some of the programs that um, are ongoing in Canada. But I, I wanted, I, I mentioned to her, I wanted to preface, you know, the this her discussion with the fact that from what I read of her work and others, the climate of a school is unbelievably important in moderating some of these difficult variables, some of the bullying even it moderates it for children who are coming from neighborhoods that have more violence in it or or family homes that have difficulties in it. So when we think about why we need these school programs and the power of the climate of the school, it's enormous. So I'm going to hand it back to you, Tracy. Tell us a little bit about some of the programs you really think work in terms of the elementary and on the upper level. I don't think any of the programs really, really work. Okay. <laughs> so, just to be clear, I mean, when we look at the uh, impact of bullying prevention and intervention programs, the outcomes are not all that great. I think we could do a lot better, and we're starting to understand how to make it better. Um, but there are some characteristics that make some programs more successful than others. And one of the things is that if we um, – address it earlier, we tend to have more success at reducing it. So um, I mentioned before the break, focusing on that K to grade three age band is really important for prevention work um, and um, and intervention work. And then there's also programs that have a universal approach where everybody in the school um, receives some type of intervention 
but those who need more have targeted intervention. So let's just say we talked about the bully victim. So that would be a group that would get more resources to address their specific issues. Um, there's a lot of uh, promise coming out of a program from Finland. It's called the Kiva program. And what they've done is they've harnessed the peer group and they've recognized the importance of uh, bystanders in the role of bullying. And so that really the focus is on getting them involved in terms of being upstanders, as you call them, instead of bystanders. So we want more defenders instead of onlookers. Um, so, th so that's how it's looking right now. One thing that's been really disappointing for those, for those who do interventions, though, is that we haven't been able to really uh, dial this down at a, at a high rate. Okay. So if you could put together a program for a high school, what would you do differently? Well, I wouldn't actually, I would back it up and actually focus earlier. Okay. And then, um, and then hoping that that, the skill sets that we're working on and that that would carry forward. So there's a lot of promise with social emotional learning programs on the reduction of bullying. It's also good for self-regulation, academic achievement and the like. I think once you get into the high school um, level, uh, you know, some of it is going to reduce on its own because of a developmental norm where bullying goes down. The issue with high school bullying is that those who tend to be victimized have been victimized for a very, very long time. Yes. So it's quite entrenched um, and they're going to need a lot of support. We mm -hmm. have a paper that we just submitted um, for publication where we looked specifically at the transition from um, middle school into high school and what it did to the rates of bullying, mm. um, victimization and perpetration. And we found that um, for 95% of kids, bullying... Uh, perpetration went down and for 5%, it went up in that mm. transition mm. and for victimization, it went down for everyone. So that's great news because a lot of kids are worried about being bullied when they go to high school. Right. So on average, there's this reduction. Um, and then maybe we see an increase if we looked at it from elementary to middle school, because we tend to see bullying peak around that age. Okay. But it was it's quite curious that that's what we found. And we did it in a way that hasn't been done before using a really uh, sophisticated analytic approach. Um, but that 5%, it's actually just closer to 6%, that, um, that group, I'm really curious to know who they are. And this is a brief report. So we haven't looked into the factors that predict that increase for that um, that almost 6%, um, but it'll be important to know about that group for intervention work. Yes, yes, really important. Well, let's talk about that group because it's interesting you say it because that's a very group, that's a group that really is involved a lot with the cyberbullying. Uh, you, you know, I don't know. It's interesting because I think this is back to what we hold as stereotypes or, um, you know, we we hold this viewpoint that may, that doesn't, um bear out when it, we look at it, okay. the science. So um, kids who are involved in cyberbullying tend to always be involved in face-to-face -face bullying. So cyberbullying is just an extension of bullying. Okay. It's a it's another form of, uh, of a pattern of disregard for others. Um, there'll be some that are uniquely bullied um, on the internet and some that are uniquely bullying others on the internet, but that's a rarity. So typically it's not like that. Typically it, it's about... Um, just this extension. Uh, the other thing too that I think we tend to hold this viewpoint that cyberbullying um, has worse outcomes for those who are targeted, and yet that doesn't—that's not supported by research either, um, with the exception of suicidality, which I'll come back to in one right. second. Mm -hmm. So, really, what it is is about um, the extent to which you're bullied, um, not how you're bullied, that matters for outcomes. Okay, there is a slight. Um, increase on suicidality among kids who are cyberbullied. Um, but keep in mind, again, kids who are cyberbullied tend to be bullied face-to-face. -face. Okay. So what what age, because the little ones tend to not be using the computers yeah, as exactly. much. Yeah, exactly. You're right. So, right. So it starts, I guess, at middle school and moves itself up. And I guess by high school, there's much more of it then. Um, it, in, the, in one study, they were the tweens, you know, the 9 to 12, etc. But um, your point's in an interesting and important one in terms of um, would would there be children who would cyberbully who would never 
physically bully because they themselves are frightened in a way they're hiding in the shadows and they're doing it. Um, I think I, I do. I do have a memory of um, you know suicides following girls. That new girl in the school. Um, somehow everyone hates her because she's pretty, and she, and there's a suicide with that child. Um, but it's it's I guess a little complicated in our district here. I remember that mothers would complain because the school at some point would say it's happening off school grounds. But the the problem, Tracy, is the issue starts in the school situation and it comes right from the school dynamics. So the question is, how involved do schools or should schools get in the cyberbullying situation? You're so smart. I'll just say that. So we, um, I was part of the expert panel for our Ministry of Education, and we have it actually in our Education Act um, that bullying, uh, you know, so bullying is in our Education Act, which is our laws. So how to address it, what needs to be done, and that sort of thing. And we successfully argued that cyberbullying is an extension of what happens in schools, mm-hmm. and therefore is the preview of schools. It's and and that's again like what I said like it's typically not the case. I'm not saying it's never going to be the case. I do think that there's some cyber trolls that only do it on that platform. They tend to be uh, have low self esteem, um, high on revenge, that sort of thing. But most of the times when kids are being bullied um, on the on you know social plat- media mm-hmm. pl- platforms, they're bullied face to face, and so. Um, and you're right that this starts at school and then it's an extension. So the form is extended and the context is extended, but it's still a school issue. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, in one of the studies, and, and I'm interested in what you see if this is consistent with what you found, they asked nine to 12 year olds. Um, this is called the tween group, I guess. Um, the most common ways of handling cyberbullying. Um, and the strategies they use, Tracy, is the most common one was blocking the bully. Mm-hmm. And that's a terrific, that's a, you know, electronic technique strategy. 60% told a parent, 50% just began ignoring the person and reported another, um, 40% reported it to a website or app. And, um, 29%, these probably don't have an ad to 100, <laughs> but 29% um, start, took a break from using the device. Um, it's, so those were like the, the attempts to seek help. But I think psychologically, when you know somebody's stalking you, Tracy, I think it's a terrible, terrible thing in terms of re- children regulating. How well can you study if you feel someone's stalking you? You can't. I mean, exactly. And I think the reason it didn't come to 100% is because they're using, they're using a lot of different strategies. Right, right. Um, if you have um, parents listening in or kids who are listening in, teenagers, and they're being harassed um, on the internet, the best thing to do would be also to take screenshots of the abuse um, and then block them and then report it. So mm-hmm. screenshot, block, report. Um, okay, so that said, no, it's, it's terrible. In fact, we did a study. Um, I think we were probably the first lab to show this in the world because I'm really interested in the neurobiology of this. Mm-hmm. So how does this experience get under the skin to confer a risk for um, poor physical and mental health? So in any event, we looked at the effects of being bullied, and it included cyberbullying, on memory vis-a-vis um, high circulating cortisol. So cortisol is uh, a hormone that's produced when you're stressed out. I mean, we always produce it, but we it really ramps up when we're stressed out and being bullied is a stressful event. Mm-hmm. So what we found were that kids who were bullied hypersecrete cortisol, so they had high uh, elevated cer- cortisol levels mm. and higher depression rates, mm. and this in turn had an impact on their memory. And mm-hmm. we specifically targeted memory Um, that deals with your prefrontal cortex and your hippocampus, because these are areas of your brain that are rich in glucocorticoid receptor sites, which are the receptor sites for cortisol. So we're kind of trying to build this mechanism, like this um, model that explains the mechanism. And so basically what 
our hypothesis is, is that bullying causes stress. Um, the body responds by producing cortisol. Cortisol impacts negatively these parts of the brain that have a lot of these glucocorticoid receptor sites. This in turn causes memory deficits. These memory deficits then impact academic achievement. Mm. In some ways, another way to say it is when you're bullied or cyberbullied, you go into fight flight. This this is a traumatic event. This is a danger. It's so, a danger that right. and it causes impair uh, cognitive impairment. Yep. Well, well, it makes sense that when you're busy trying to survive, uh, intellectual thinking is is not going to be in, in the forefront. It's so, and this is why we looked at the type of memory that's affected by cortisol, right? Um, exactly. So it's, you know, your recall is not going to be great because you're so hyper-focused on, like you said, surviving. Yep. Wow. So it's, it's interesting in terms of uh, one case, the mother, this is a single mother. So the child started, the teen, this high school, he started being cyber bullied and she picked up, she knew what you had just said. They copied, they printed out everything and she went to the parents of the kid who was doing the cyber bullying. Um, and she suggested to them, you know, if this doesn't continue, I think you should get a lawyer. Now she did that, Tracy, because the school had said it was not their business. That's what I was mm -hmm. you know, mentioning before. Um, and they, we did have out here in Suffolk County on Long Island in New York, we had a um, cyber task force that also helped her at some point. But I think the whole idea of the screenshot, the evidence, at least it empowers someone into feeling I could take charge, that sense of agency, because the worst feeling is to be the victim that doesn't feel they can do anything. Exactly. You know, what's really interesting. So we have this phenomenon in Canada, and I'm sure it exists in the United States, where when somebody's being bullied, the bystanders will record the interaction. And it frustrates the heck out of me because I really think they should put down their phone and get help instead of recording it. Mm -hmm. And they defend their behavior and say that, oh, I was doing it so that there would be evidence of this interaction and that that would help the victim in the future. But really, what would help the individual would be, again, for them to get immediate help, not for the person to you know, be humiliated and physically injured and the like. But nevertheless, those cases where there is this video evidence tend to be resolved very quickly. You know, the police get involved because um, the evidence is compelling, mm -hmm. um, you know, and so, so obvious. Um, and, and bullying tends to stop pretty quickly. It's too bad that we need that kind of evidence for adults to respond to this. We have to be less apathetic. We need to understand that this is a notable threat to the individual that, um, it, that we need to be um, engaged in in this uh, this issue, and uh, and we need to reduce bullying in schools because it causes tremendous harm to those who are victimized. Well, Tracy, tell us a little bit. Now, you mentioned the the neurophysiological impact. What are the other impacts on bullying that children bear that really warrant these programs and your research? What so, else? Okay, so we'll just deal with the mental health. Um, yeah. side first, and then I'll go into physical health, and then I'll deal with the neurobiological um, evidence. So we know that bullying causes mental health difficulties. So uh, scientists don't usually use a causal statement like that. You know, you usually need experimental evidence, but we have enough longitudinal data points, uh, enough longitudinal studies to say that there's a causal link between being bullied and having poor mental health. And it typically affects um depression and anxiety levels. So symptoms of depression and anxiety tend to be high in kids who are bullied and also you see suicidality increasing. Um, and then in terms of physical health, they also are more likely to have physical health complaints and um, they're more likely to catch colds To I bet you there'd be a link between um, being susceptible to COVID-19 and being bullied because, right. you know, obviously your immune system is suppressed when you're stressed out. Um, they have more headaches, they have more stomach aches. Um, so somatic uh, symptoms and the like. And then in terms of the neurobiology, there's quite a bit of evidence coming out. And we just wrote a really comprehensive review of this evidence in, and it appears in Frontiers in Neuroscience, um, where we delineate 
what it impacts the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal access, which is the stress response system. Mm -hmm. So kids who are bullied either overproduce cortisol or underproduce cortisol, Mm -hmm. and neither is good. Um, Kids who are bullied tend to have higher inflammation, and inflammation is bad for your health, and that persists into adulthood. There are also structural and functional differences to their brains. So you'll see things like, um, you know, like we talked about the um, glucocorticoid receptor sites. So there's also um, some differences in terms of cell death that you'll see um, in that area. There are differences in terms of... Just, uh, just, Tracy, just give us one one or two more because we have to go into... I'll give you, I was only going to give you two more. Um, So telomere erosion tends to be higher, um, which is, it's basically the end of your chromosome and it gives you an idea of, um, it's almost like a, like a a ticking time of like how much a stress you've endured in your life, a good indicator of that. And then you'll also see um, differences uh, to uh, epigenetic differences. So the expression of genes or the silences of genes in kids who are uh, bullied. Okay, you you are like a wealth of information. I am so grateful that you joined us today. Tracy, if you had a quick take-home message to all our teachers, parents, young people, internationally listening, what would you say? Uh, Take this seriously. This causes profound harm. And uh, when somebody tells you that they're being bullied, uh, you need to support them. Terrific. And people can find your research and more information about you how? What is your, um, what's the so, way they do that? So they can either follow me on Twitter if they're interested. It's my last name, V-A-I-L-L-A-N-C-O-U-R-T underscore doctor, or they could just Google me, Tracy Vinecore, and you, you'll find it. It's you, hyperlinked. Thank you so much for all the work you do and that you're continuing to do. And thank you so much for being with us today, Tracy. Oh, thanks for having me. I appreciated your questions. You were very well prepared. <laughs> thanks. Um, I want to remind my listeners to stay listening, stay safe. And this show, as any of our shows, will turn into a podcast by this afternoon, and you'll be able to hear it on your iPhones, on iTunes, Stitcher, Apple, Amazon, Audible. Remember, until next week, be safe and be listening. Thank you for tuning in to Psych Up Live. Please join Dr. Suzanne Phillips for another edition of our programming next Thursday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Until then, be well and be listening.